So I'll just kick off by saying we've been talking about gender equality in Australia theatre, Australian theatre, since at least the early 1980s. And I'm going to read a quote from Dorothy Hewitt, which has actually been in every kind of significant piece of writing um, about women in theatre since 1983. Uh, she said, we have something of the utmost importance to contribute, the sensibility, the experience and expertise of one half of humanity. All we ask is that we are able to do this in conditions of complete equality. Yet somehow, this complete equality since 1983 remains elusive. Um, certainly though, much has changed in supporting and producing women's writing and directorial vision since the 80s, and indeed progressing women's careers across the arts. But there's still a long way to go. Uh, as the various eruptions around the release of theatre seasons um, every year or every few years tells us, we all recall the watershed moment of the 2010 Belvoir uh, launch with the image of 11 directors lined up uh, with one woman, Lee. Um, actually, and from that moment, of course, there was a lot of debate and discussion and um, activism by women in theatre, um, which, um, which came up with lots of ideas and strategies. That was also the point at which the Australia Council commissioned Women in Theatre, a research report and action plan for the Australia Council for the Arts, uh, commissioned uh, Elaine Lally and Sarah to write that report. One of the, and that, that was, again, a significant moment, um, and one of the findings from that report was that since 2000, um, there was a pattern, this is in, in kind of looking at the figures of directors and writers in main stage, um, and in fact the small to, to medium sector in Australian theatre, and it, it identified a pattern of bad years for women, although even in a good year for women, um, participation lags significantly behind their male counterparts. Uh, in most years, only a 30 to 40% productions uh, have a woman in creative leadership roles, with this proportion dipping below 30% in some years. Um, this, I would maintain, so that, that report came out in 2012. Um, we don't have all of the figures counted in exactly the same way that the report um, uh, gathered those figures in 2012. But um, anecdotal kind of reporting uh, would suggest that that pattern of good and bad years persists, um, though the overall figures, uh, percentages of representation of women in writer and director roles um, has increased. Um, but again, we had a moment last year at the launch of the 2016 Darlinghurst Theatre um, when, uh, it, you know, um, issues around representation were yet again uh, reigniting debate. Um, this was when the Women in Theatre, women in theatre and Screen uh, uh, group actually began their most important work. Um, so analysis of 2016 seasons um, showed only three companies have reached gender parity. parity. Now, it's only three, but it's actually three more than it was four years ago. So um, those companies were um, State Theatre Company of South Australia, uh, which achieved gender parity in both writers and directors, uh, and Sydney's Griffin and Belvoir Theatres, which achieved above parity on their overall, overall inclusion of female writers and directors. This is contrasted with... Darlinghurst Theatre um, had the lowest equality score of 17%, um, and Perth's Black Swan, 22%, and Sydney's Ensemble Theatre, 30%. So you'll see that there's still a long way to go. Do you want to... I would like to put in, though, that comparing Darlinghurst to it, the other yes. companies is actually unfair, because a lot of their programming options come after the other theatre companies have programmed and offered... Yep. And, and they're not a major company, I no, totally take that and point. And they're not dealing with the same funding questions yep. yet. Yeah. Uh, they obviously will be. Uh, mm. But they're also in conversation with Glenn. He, uh, the conversation is always about the desire to have parity, but the difficulty of finding people available at different times. And availability is a big conversation, yes. especially when the, the, the depth of equity options are not, is not established as yep. such yet. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so today um, we're going to discuss uh, around, around two areas, really. So really that of opportunities for women in theatre, um, employment, development and careers, 
And then on the other side of the coin, why it's important that women's voices are shaping the broader cultural imagination and indeed lived experience for women now and in the future. Um, I might start by asking Van a question. Um, uh, last night, P Piper Kerman was talking about, and I think today in her paper, was talking about the difference between teaching women and men inmates uh, writing skills. Um, and. That, that men were very quickly able to grasp themselves as the protagonist and subscribe to narrative tropes, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, while women were much slower to, to move to that. Um, and Van, I know you have a passion for challenging cultural representation, how women are located in narrative structure as objects rather than subjects, and the privileging of male viewpoints. What do we need to do to challenge and change those kind of narrative, that narrative scope? Well, yeah, I mean, part of the, part of the problem, um, and it, Lee's right, that there is a, a depth of a, a resource pool that is lacking. Because the problems actually begin before people even go into their tertiary training. The problems begin with the way that we educate and we culturally educate girls. And if you look at something like the Gina Davis Institute for Representations mm. of Women in the Media, Gina Davis, the, the Hollywood actor, started this institute when she had children of her own and noticed that children's television overwhelmingly gave male characters protagonist narratives that were heroic, that were about solving mm. problems and doing things, where the narrative options offered to female protagonists were to find a love match. And overwhelmingly, this has been the case. This was the case for my childhood mm. and the childhood of most of the people in this room. It is beginning to change but only because of really concerted efforts by feminist artists to, to open those narrative possibilities for girls. Mm. And, I mean, you only have to look at something like the absolute furor with the new Ghostbusters movie of recasting the Ghostbusters as women and the fact that this was seen to be this cultural watershed of this feminist conspiracy that had finally taken over Hollywood openly and was going to destroy men's lives by giving women a movie Excellent. in which they would be doing something as opposed to trying to get laid, right? <laughs> And, and this is the problem. We inherit centuries of literature <coughs> in the theatre, in film, in television, um, in printed literature that tells us that men are subjects, men make decisions, men lead action, men are leaders, men are warriors, men make tragic decisions or make comic decisions, and women are objects. We're positioned as rewards, that once the hero has completed his narrative, he, you know, wins a girl. And part of the problem is that when these cultural stereotypes are so overpresent, it educates all of us in what we can, how we can expect to engage society. Now, obviously, our lives are a lot more complicated than the narratives that were offered in culture. You know, women are, oh my God, kill surprise, spoiler alert, three-dimensional beings who can who make their own choices and have their own feelings. Culture doesn't actually give us a lot of evidence that this is true, or that women can be posited as uh, puzzlers or problem-solvers or leaders or warriors. Mm. And often when we do represent women in those capacities, we represent them by sort of attaching a female identity to a male experience, and it comes off as mm. insincere. There's a really influential essay that had a massive impact on me by an American academic called Lyndon Notchen, and I think it was published in the 70s or 80s, mm -hmm. called There Is No Such Thing, uh, Women Cannot Be Great Artists. Because the very notion <laughs> of greatness is a masculine construct, mm -hmm. that it's men who are the creators and the source of energy. And she was talking specifically about visual art and action painting, and this whole sort of genre around the performance of the masculine id, and that, if you, that greatness is strength and towering and physical presence and masculinity and phallic symbols and that if you create a construct that says men are like this, well, if you're a woman, you will always fail to be able to perform that role. And protagonism in, in literature and narrative is just the same. Like, if you just recast without looking at the very real complications that affect women, and this is the, my point about women writers and where it starts, because when I, I learned when I was working in programming for a theatre company and desperately trying to fix the gender quotas, like, as a feminist activist, determined <coughs> that I would be part of the solution and the change, I found that boys would come to me all the time. I have written a play. I have written a play and I expect you to read it because I, a man, have written a play. Where I <laughs> would have to go out and find young female or emerging female artists and locate them and develop a conversation with them and build trust with them. It was a much longer conversation to convince them that they were entitled 
to have a role within the production of narrative because that's not the message that girls receive, mm. that they, they can be makers and they have a sense of entitlement. Mm. And this is where it begins. You know, the, the solution to the problem um, of women's participation is, is the same solution to the problem of cultural representation, that we have to challenge the way that women are represented and open up the experience of narrative that allows women to participate. Mm. Fantastic. Lee, I just want to throw to you for a moment because um, you, uh, as I just said in the, in the introduction, Griffin has in fact reached gender parity this year on, on, on you know, um, so I, I, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. I mean, Van's just talked about going out to find the women or, or you know, what kind of different process it might be or whether you experience that, uh, you know, what it might mean to be at that level of, of parity at the moment and what that, how that changes the practice. It's hard, to, it's hard to find, it's hard to maintain, and it's an ongoing conversation between all of the theatre companies. We're mm. on the phone a lot saying, who have you got? Where's their writing? Is now the right time? Is it too soon? Have, how do we not miss the moment on this particular person, this particular play? It, the consciousness is all there. Pulling it off each year is difficult. Yeah. And I think I can feel it changing the way the theatre companies are working together. Mm. The conversations are a lot more open than they used to be. Uh, because people are being watched. And there is a conversation at launch time. You know people are going to measure things. Yeah. So have you succeeded? Have you failed? And how do you wear the failure? How, mm. like, what stage of the failure are you in? What have you got? That question of pipeline, mm. what works are on their way but not ready yet? Because there's Indeed, also so the a three-year arc might be a fairer it, kind of assessment of, absolutely. of any... Absolutely. It, it took us five years to get Masquerade on stage yeah. from when Kate brought it to us to when we actually managed mm. to pull it mm. off. So there were years when it would have been great if we'd had that on stage. It would have actually made it uh, our engagement with uh, diversity writers be much greater. But it, we couldn't talk about it. It wasn't mm. ready yet. And not pushing the works before they're ready is really important. Yeah. Because you can do a lot of damage by putting a work on before it's ready because you need it politically. Mm. Uh, and then the writer has a bad experience and that's not fair on that writer. Mm. And overwhelmingly, women do not recover from the experience of failure with the same rebound that men do. The industry and criticism is very unforgiving of women artists. Yeah. I think, I don't know that any writer recovers well. From I, don't the think, I would have to say I don't think any artist recovers well. I've seen yeah. a lot of artists who have been scarred by yeah. um, criticism wherever it, wherever it comes from. I think, I think one of the things that I certainly found in, in my own practice and one of the reasons that I moved out of the mainstream theatre area is for precisely the reasons that you were talking about. But I think what I found was important to move the game. And I actually remember writing an article in, in the, in the mid-'80s, good God, in <laughs> 1986, for a little um, performance journal called Spectator Burns, where I remember being very critical of Belvoir Street Theatre, who were making a lot of claims about what they were doing for women and Indigenous artists in particular. Oh, Notice those two. Don't get often come together. I know. And, and, and in actual fact, what they were doing was that they were putting women and Indigenous practitioners downstairs in the small space, and they were putting men in the big space. But also to me, and I think... Um, times have changed and it's not always the same. The form was actually a trap. Mm. Coming from a slightly different perspective, but yes, the form was a trap. So, so for me, you know, women went out and they worked in a whole lot of places and they made really exciting work and they continue to make exciting work and they did it in community theatre and they did it in youth arts and they did it in culturally diverse areas and Indigenous women have been making great theatre since, you know, God knows forever when. And all of those things were really exciting and they were working in areas that people hadn't even considered. You know, mm. new we called it new form back in the 80s. Um, but mm. some people talk about the post-traumatic, they talk about contemporary performance. And it wasn't just a stylistic thing. I know, I, I know more recently people have talked mm. about it more in, in terms of style rather than content, but we passionately <sighs> believed, and I still believe, you know, that form follows function. And you mm. know, when you shift the form, you can change actually a lot of the messages that are going forward. And that was very much, you know, that was strongly behind the rhetoric. And we were very influenced too by what was happening in the visual arts, which was theorising in a way that was not happening in theatre, which was, um, which was trapped by its own commercial imperatives in lots of ways. There was a lot going on in that space. So the business of theatre could also be a problem. 
So that's, you know, that's just one yes. thing that I would say about that. And so it is concerning to me, and I'm going to go leap forward a little mm. bit, but um, because it seems to me that women have been visible, strong, compelling, effective. And I will say, and I'll disagree a little bit with Lee here, that having run two contemporary art spaces, that actually a lot of people make work that isn't what you hope it would be, but unless you put it out there, they're never going to get the chance mm. to grow that work. So I, I think you always have to have a lot of things happening simultaneously. You have to have the development happening, you have to have um, the feedback happening, and you have to have the presentation happening. And I imagine that that's the experience for a lot of the practitioners in this room, you know, that it's when all of those things kind of are allowed to evolve, and they can only be allowed to evolve when people are allowed to fail, actually. People have to be able to to mm. fail, and we have to see that mm. as a proper part of artistic development. Mm. Rhoda. Look, it's interesting uh, um, going back and looking at the whole gender thing. When we um, start, founded the Aboriginal National Theatre Trust back in the mid-50s and we were doing productions, it was our whole thing. There was no gender base. It was literally about getting the work onto the stages. And in fact, we took it from very much, we were guided by the late Uldru Nunakul, the late Justine Saunders, the late Vivian Walker, first Aboriginal graduate of NIDA in 1960s, um, and various other elders guided us. And when we set up the Theatre Trust, we really tried to look at it not from a Western theatre practitioner type of approach, but through a different lens of how we would structure things in our own society. So the gender really didn't play any sort of role there. We were just like, we have to get the works and they have to be good. And we have to, and we set ourselves this huge benchmark. But of course, in the mid 80s, and I'll just, can I just touch on this? Because many of you wouldn't know. In the mid 80s, there was not one theatre company except for the gorgeous performance space that would allow an all produced Aboriginal work to have a season at their venue. Horror, because black fellas would foul, they wouldn't be able to sell the tickets, and of course, no risk. Performance Space offered us a space, and we were of that era where we were like, we don't want to be on the fringe, we are mainstream theatre practitioners. And so Sue Natras, the amazing Sue Natras, who was at the Victorian Arts Centre, each year, our three productions, we would travel them to Melbourne and we would launch them down there. And we had a huge audience, but we did not have that audience in Sydney until another woman, Chris Westwood, became the general manager of Belvoir Street and she lifted that band to allow us to put our shows into Belvoir Street. So it's great talking about the gender and the representation and we've moved, we're in a renaissance now. Our world is changing. We're on the small screen, we're on the large screen. We just opened Berlin Film Festival. We have visual arts everywhere. We have all these sectors gaining, and yet when we look at the theatre, sadly, some of those companies think they have to employ the Aboriginal person, place them in the basement, don't give them any support, but it validates the work that they have Tick the box to say there's an Indigenous person. And it's dangerous because those young people coming through those theatre companies, and particularly the writers, have had a bad experience. And how do you recover from that? So we have to look at other ways as well. And quite frankly, the only way, if you want to put that disparity and close that gap, is actually put Aboriginal people in the decision-making area where they have a budget, where they have a voice, where they're not censored, and forget the white male who can direct the Aboriginal play. <laughs> His career's been really done well, um, but we need to be committed, because if we truly believe that we want to have a diverse theatre network in this country, then we need to be talking to Western Sydney, to Asian writers, to Asian people. When do we see them? Where's... There's a huge disparity there, but we also need to be committed to giving that voice and a step up. And we're all responsible if we want to work in the theatre because it's, it's not Aboriginal work. 
It's not Asian work. It's new Australian yeah. work. Thanks, Okay, Rhoda. I'll shut up now. No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lee, can, can you just talk for a moment? I mean, you, um, you talk about yourself as a beneficiary of a whole lot of change. Um, can you talk about what you know, what you need to do in order to contribute to the next tranche of change and what you are doing, I think that that's it, it's interesting to hear. Look, I think from, for me, I've, it's only been in the last five, six years I've learned how to talk about myself as a female theatre maker with ambition mm. uh, and to realise that I have to do that to ensure that the things that I have enjoyed, which is access to an extraordinary education, to opportunities that were on the back of incredible careers of the women that have come before me. When I look at, when I look at Sydney, there have been extraordinary female theatre makers, mm. and I'm not a radical voice. I am a fairly conservative voice, and I didn't have to be radical to get where I am. So I'm kind of, I'm interesting because I'm not significant in the position that I have from my point of view, I think. I think you're no, significant. No, that's, yes. no, but, you know, no, 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 no. What, uh, I'm, I'm, the f I'm not interested in being the first person. I think those, yes. breakthrough, uh, those breakthroughs were made 20, 30, 40 mm. years ago by people who, were f who had to fight far harder to get to those positions. Mm. And, and they were variously questioned, pilloried, mocked, uh, mm. and fought a lot harder than I had to do to mm. get to where I am. And I'm actually a significant generation where actually I, I can feel entitled to apply mm. as opposed to it being this huge reach. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm interested in the, the fifth, the sixth, mm. the seventh, the tenth woman to do something, not the first. Yeah. The first is another question. Uh, so... So there's that, but what I've realised is being, in being the, the 10th, the 15th, the 20th, is that my job is to make sure that it keeps going. Mm. It's, mm. It, to, to find a vigilance without a radical politics is actually mm. quite difficult. And to make sure that those, that question of, of education, opportunity, and, and the kick in the butt that says work harder is extended to the next generation. That yeah. actually enjoying the benefits of the generation that I'm in doesn't mean I can kick back. Yeah. or not be interested and not engaged and not actually develop a language that says, yes, I have to make sure that it keeps going. Because I'm, I'm very conscious that I sit in a, an incredibly privileged position uh, in, in Sydney, in Australia, actually in the world, and that, you know, we can talk about a boys' club here in Sydney, but seriously, it's a boys' planet. Mm. And that's what we're trying to refigure here. And mm. I feel incredibly happy to be in an age and a time and a city where I can talk this way and not feel like I'm going to lose my job, mm. not feel like my partner's going to be hideously embarrassed and not know how to live with me. Mm. Uh, so... I think Mine's that's got used to it. <laughs> well, but, but, do you, but do you know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I'm very aware of the luck that I have had in where I'm born and who I was born to mm. be. And I'm aware that that luck doesn't extend to very many women on the planet. And part of my job in enjoying the benefits of my position is to learn how to speak about ensuring it goes further. Mm. And, and, I, and that experience now is only five, six years deep. Yeah. Yeah. So, can, can I just ask you another question, which I'd then like other people to respond to as well. But you, you mentioned that a, as a woman, you, uh, you have to accrue and be very careful about accruing a whole range of experience in order for the next step to be inevitable. You, you said to me, we know what a male wunderkind looks like. Perhaps we don't know what a woman wunderkind looks like. We even know. know what they're wearing. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yes. that amazing yes. image of Belvoir where all the boys were wearing the same thing, Lee in her white shirt. Yeah. So, so I'm just interested yeah. in hearing you kind of unpick what we need to accrue and what that process is, and then to hear from the other panellists about what they think about that. I made a choice really early on to not be on... Uh, to try and work in the mainstream space. Mm -hmm. And that to do that, I had to get around all of the different things that said, I don't look like I should be there, I don't have the right experience, I just have, and whenever someone identifies for me, oh, you're not quite there yet, I go, okay, right, what have I got to do now? Because I want that place. Uh, and it's a, there are concessions that you make because mm. I'm playing in a game that is not I'm not meant to be in yet, mm. and I want to change that. Mm. So that's a conscious choice, occurring the various things when someone says to me, maybe you need to be mentored by someone at a much larger, or, or larger organisation. I go, okay, sure. 
fine, I will find that person. I will mm. do that. I mm. will, and I've got to do that so that when I apply for something, it is inevitable that I get it rather than a reach because mm. we don't like gambling on women. We gamble on men. We've got mm. a great heritage of it. We know what they look like. We've seen that pattern mm. before. We, we are happier taking that risk. Mm. And that, that question of you know, people coming into the room, I'm conscious of that for myself. When I have interviews with young writers and young directors, I know what a young male looks like who's on the success track. But so do they. Mm. And they are fitting <laughs> into that mold and they are signaling to you that I am that person. You go, okay, I can see that. The signals are not as clear for women. I don't know how mm. to behave in order to trigger trust in someone else. Yes, sometimes you may make male patterns. That doesn't necessarily work. But, but I think there's also an extraordinary possibility for women in that we're not shoved into the same ruts. I don't have to look the same mm. as a Sam Strong, as an Andrew Upton, in order to succeed. Mm. I can actually, there's a, there's a lot more freedom available to me to invent the way that I want to work. Right. So I find it actually quite a, a positive time, and I mm. look at, I look a, a little bit with pity at the young men, at the way they have, they, 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 they see a path, and they think if they stick to that path, they will win. And I go, actually, not so much anymore. Yeah. And I'm ready to go off the path because that's what I've tr I have to do. They're not so ready. No. So I actually think we're better equipped for the next 20 to 50 years. Great. Can I tell my favourite story? Because sure. I've worked in programming. Like, I've been one of those people <laughs> who sit in the meeting where you have all of the key, key um, makers, key theatre, key artists. On, um, on the projects and they come in and it's all happening now at the moment like in all the major theatre companies people are coming in and they're showing you their wares and the, the female key artist comes in key artist and she will have this amazing resource with her it will, if, if it's a female director she will come in with this massive binder full of swatches of material and lists of personnel and about 26 alternative budgets so I can do the show for $100 if you've only got $100 I can do this and I've done this and I've done this and blah 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 and I could speak, I could work with this person. I'm happy to collaborate. I'm more than happy to take a mentor mm. on board. I'm happy to do whatever you want. And I've thought about this and I've researched it, but I could do another project and it'll be fine. Alternatively, <laughs> and this happened, young male artist comes into the room and it's like, young male artist, what have you got for us? Lies back, <laughs> scratch. I could do Brecht. <laughs> that sounds great. We'll program you next year. Fantastic. <laughs> like, that happened. That's a true story. Mm. And this is, when Lee talks about making things inevitable, I can understand that. Like, especially with, with directors and, and people who are pursuing a particular kind of main stage professional sustainability. Like, you have to make it inevitable or you won't eat. Mm. And for me, as, because I, I began, and Sarah would remember, because I, Sarah, I, used, I trained at the University of Wollongong. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and, I, and I was the kind of kid who really lo I liked action movies and I liked thrillers and I liked guns and I liked bombs and I wanted to write about <laughs> terrorism. And you, girls can't do that. Like, girls, there are subjects that, oh, you know, I don't know if she's got the attack. I've heard this in programming meetings as well. I don't know if she's got the attack to write about this particular subject matter. And <clears> I... <throat> changed my name. When I was Vanessa Batum, I didn't get any work in the theatre. I didn't get any at all. But I went to England and I changed my name to Van and then all of a sudden I was getting picked up for training and I was getting picked up for developments and I was getting picked up for all of this stuff. So I've been Van ever since. I have a wonderful letter from John Pilger saying it's great to see young men really engaging with political <laughs> issues. <laughs> but what happened to me was that I was pursuing like my artistic practice in a you know, narrative text-based realism way. And I found as I got older and less concerned about the approval of men, because as a woman, the, there's this wonderful thing that happens. Um, for me, it happened when I was in my late 30s where I just didn't give a shit what men thought about me anymore. I didn't care if they wanted to have sex with me or like me or thought I was polite. It was the most incredible liberation, because I thought, you know, I'm just gonna do my own thing. And if you don't like, want to sleep with me, great. Plus, which is an amazing turnaround from certainly how I thought of myself when I was in my 20s, where be, you know, male approval was so important to me because that's how I'd been cultured mm. to behave. And I stopped calling myself a playwright because I realised the form I was working in, narrative text-based realism, women cannot win in that form. I if, don't think that's true. I, I don't <laughs> think women can. I genuinely don't because I think if you replicate the formal structures of patriarchy, you re-perpetuate its messages. And for me, I, was, I wrote a play that was about a, a strike 
like of female theatre technicians. These women are getting sexually harassed in the theatre company where they work for, and oh, this, all of this is completely made up, by the way, an incredible invention of my imagination, and they decide to go on strike. And I was working with the dramaturg, who's a young feminist, Jenny Medway, who's fantastic, and I was like, I can't, these women cannot win. I could have them win the case in the play, yeah. but the audience will side with the boys, the boy characters, because they're funnier and they're all of these things. And I realised that the only way I could take control of that, of that story was for something magical to happen. So I solved the problem. I had trees come through the floor and all the men turned into deers <laughs> and the women hunted them and killed them. So... <laughs> But for me, it was like this light bulb moment of going, I have to liberate, as a feminist, I've got to liberate myself from form. I cannot make feminist work of any sincerity unless I throw realism in the bin. Because if I'm replicating the real, I will continue to replicate the messages of the real, mm. which are women are lesser, you know, women have less agency, women are objects, men are subjects. And that's when I threw out the word playwright and became a theatre maker and took charge of my own practice. That's come at a huge cost. Like, you know, a kind of mainstream trajectory I might have been on, I have given up. But do I feel better and am I making work that I think is better? Yes. Great. Okay. And we all don't have to agree. I think it's an interesting... <laughs> <laughs> um, I will... Um, I'd just like to ask you, Rhoda, mm. just for a moment, um, just around that succession issue. I know you care a lot about succession, um, both within your community and in your workplaces, which are multiple. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you... Um, I know you work a lot with young Indigenous women and, and men, but what are your strategies for um, taking care of that next generation to have the greater opportunities? Thank you. Um, yes, I agree. We're in a very privileged position. I probably have the most privileged position of any First Nations globally. Being head of Indigenous programming at the Sydney Opera House is a huge responsibility. And so it's really about learning what I learnt from my mentors, who were men and women. Um, you know, I had mentors of women in the theatre, but then I stepped into the music industry and I had Michael Chug and, and um, Peter Noble as my mentors. You know, the blokiest blokes bloke you could ever <laughs> possibly think of. But... I learned to listen and that was the big thing. And what they did for me, uh, particularly the women, you know, that I worked with from Justine Saunders and Lydia Miller and various other... Look, the list could just go on forever. Uh, Wendy, oh gosh, you know, just so many people gave us a step up. And what they taught us was, your path's going to be different because you're thinking differently. So you've got to consistently learn to compromise but also have plan B that can be flexible. So it was like this, this world that we'd want to do this and they go, no, just go over here. So I think the big key was they allowed us to jump in the deep end and tread water. They really threw us, you know, instead of going, right, you can buddy us and you can be uh, assistant director on this theatre piece, they would actually give us a scene or a moment or a project or something to do where we had to cut our teeth. And it was really about that work ethic and also really testing us. Aboriginal politics and women in the theatre uh, are very strong. They've had to be. Um, so if you don't cut it, you're out. You know, there's Richard Bell says there's a longevity of five years. If they haven't cut it by then, they've gone. Don't worry, move on. And I go, no, I can't invest all this time and worry and love and nurture into this person knowing in five years that they could be gone. So I've gone back going, they won't be gone because I'm going to make sure that I'm the road worker. So... You know, if I can smooth it and make different paths for them, so they might be gone for a little while, but then there's another way to come back in because we have to be... Our theatre is changing. Our stories are going global. We've got multimedia. But one of the big things that I've learnt, every day of my life, I am so blessed. I, I don't want this to sound wanky, but <laughs> seriously to God, if you saw some of the young people... And I'm talking black and white, male and female, but, you know, a lot of the women that surround me now, 
oh my God, they are just so smart. They're so articulate. They've been to university. I left at fourth form, shows how old I am. You know, they're just incredible. And they are on this huge... In 10 years' time, we're going to see an Aboriginal circuit in theatre. We're going to see directors and writers like you, who are writing material about where they are, not specifically about who they are, because we'll have grown. We need to tell those stories now. Don't get me started on the colonisation stories at the moment by the <laughs> white males. Um, <laughs> but, sorry, I, I just... Every day... I work with a, a young woman... Um, uh, she's from England. And she came and she got handed, you know, to work with the... as an associate producer. And she just threw herself in. She listened, she listened. I hope I guided her. I don't know, she, because I'm a bit crazy. But what she has done and the way that she's... It's just such an inspiration. Apart from all the black fellas, they're all just fan fantastic and they're learning and we've got programs set up for them and that's really exciting. But this really taught me, this young English girl, right? Bloody from Chelsea as well, if you don't mind, yeah? <laughs> anyway, she comes and she just opened her... You know, she listened, she did her job, she's amazing. But in the space of a very short time... Not only did she get the lens that we were operating on, she started to create those strategies and those pathways, made my job so much easier. And every moment she'll say something, you know, like we're trying to get Noel Pearson at the moment, if you're listening, Noel, bloody hell. Anyway, chasing artists is really hard. And the way she does it, in the manner she's done it, I'm sure half those black fellas that she's chasing think she's a black fella. Because <laughs> she does it with such dignity and such strength and passion because she wants to see the excellence. And if she can... Sorry, yeah, if she can learn that in such a short period of time, she's almost a mentor for me, you know? Fantastic, yeah. So I think, yes. Fantastic. Okay, Sarah, I just want to um, ask you a question which kind of links some of the, some of the um, things that we've been discussing and indeed your earlier points. Um, you wrote a piece called Women in Leadership Theatre, part of the Encyclopedia of Women in Leadership for the 20th Century. Um, and I just wondered, um, you raise a key question about whether women getting the top jobs with the commensurate perks of salary and prestige in the mainstream is as important as ensuring that other forms of diversity, where women are often more prominent, um, are enabled and rewarded. So I just want to ask you about, you know, um, I, I guess by which you mean theatre for and with young people, community engaged practices, project based ensembles, emerging and experimental forms, all of the areas, all of the forms that in fact are most at risk under the current um, funding crisis that we have in Australia. Deliberate um, funding crisis. Deliberate funding crisis. And these are, in fact, um, areas where women are very well represented. Mm. Um, and not, not always as a kind of training ground for the big company directorships, though sometimes. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask you about how we do increase the recognition and status in those areas, rather than always looking at the mainstream and trying to get parity there. That's an important story. But there's also another story, which is where the women choose to work and how we can ensure that that is made more important. It's been a really... For those of you who have been here today, it's been a really fantastic day, and I've gone to a number of the sessions, and of course the same issues come up in all of them, and they are about gender and power, they're about empathy, they're about compassion, they're about change. And so clearly this is a strongly felt need, not just in the arts, but right across the board. So I suppose where I am particularly concerned is, is in where um, the arts and social justice issues meet, as well as where the freedom to experiment with form is. I mean, I find it kind of heartbreaking that Winston Churchill is the most quoted man on Facebook when it comes to the importance <laughs> of the arts and why you would fight to keep them. So I, I think, you know, we're in a really dangerous place. Ben and Fiona have both just identified that moment as we saw last year. What I think the arts does is make this enormous, valuable contribution to civil society. And I think, as with much of the public sector, it is so... Education would be the other 
massive area health, all of these kinds of things, they're so, so at risk at the moment. And what happened last year with um, the Brandis decision, let's call it, and the demolishing of the Australia Council, the Australia Council for me is, is not so much the issue, it's an important issue, but not so much the issue as what the government of Australia said about all the people working in all those critical areas. I mm. mean, if I talk about... Let's just take Sydney, because that's where we are, as an example, and I think about what the youth arts organisations are doing. It doesn't matter whether it's Power Youth in the western suburb or it's shop, shop front down in south-west Sydney or where it is. You know, they provide opportunities for young kids, you know, from this high all the way through to their post-university, and, of course, there are a lot of people who are post-university here today. They provide um, opportunities for graduates to work with kids at risk, with children who are refugees, with migrant kids, they expose them to the entire mosaic that makes up our society. And these are the organisations that we're going to cut. They live mm. on the smell of an oily mm. rag, mm. as it is. And I, I, I feel... Um, I, I don't even know how to address it because I think everyone feels this way at the moment. It's so frustrating in terms of things that are critically important, the environment obviously being the other one. I mean, Rhoda's panel mm. earlier today you know, on the land and First Nations people's relationship to climate change. These are all things, and the arts is a really irritating thing in some ways because the, an artist will always have something to say about every goddamn topic under the sun, and they will want to play in all of those spaces and contribute to all of those discussions and debates. And yet we want to take that all away. And and it, but it's deliberate. I, I mean, know this it's is deliberate. I mean, but um, so so we have to revalue civil society. Is yes. what I'm saying. Mm. We actually have to take our power back as the electorate, and I think we have to insist that these things are valuable. And that's where it becomes very important. You know, not just for the people who are working in in organisations and who have some framework of institutional power. But, um, you know, people who are otherwise the audiences, the, the, the participants in society to actually, you know, say that this isn't good enough. You know, this is not what we're building a society for. I mean, if business is the only template we're working to, we are absolutely rooted but at was, every level. It was amazing <clears throat> that people sort of naively reacted to the cuts like, oh, my God, don't the government know how many youth companies are going to be taken out? And no, don't the don't government know. know how many um, women's companies, like women are going to be disadvantaged by these cuts or Indigenous organisations? And surely we just need to tell the government about the effect. They know. They know what the effect is. Their political mission is the consolidation of white male power. The decisions of cutting funding were deliberate to dismember a community that could speak back to white male power. And do not be under any illusions that it was about anything else. Okay. Now, it's actually time to hand over to the audience, I think. Okay. Um, so we all have an opportunity to continue this discussion, but we actually have two mics. There's one down here and number two up there. So um, I'd like to invite um, members of the audience to come to the mic um, and ask questions to any of our panellists. Um, Rody, did you want to say something just, just before we go there? I just wanted to say, you know, isn't it incredible the way that we look at science and how, you know, there's been several festivals, one in Brisbane, one in Mes Melbourne, looking at science, and we allow science to take enormous risk, but we won't allow that in the arts. We in invest so much money into our sciences, but our arts is connected to science, and it's just as important for mm. civic pride and, and growth of a nation. Mm. And science is also under attack at the mm. moment. Yeah. One, <laughs> um, please. Um, yeah, I just I wanted to ask Rhoda you a question about mentorship because you were yeah. you were asking about uh, you were talking about mentors before. Um, I'm not in the theatre business. I'm in the music business, and uh, I spend a lot of time touring around with a van full of boys and two other grown men. So it's a real boys club. Um, but I know that in my experience, it's been really difficult to find women to mentor me, or even just to talk to, um, about the difference in experience that you have as a, as a young creative woman. I wanted to ask you, um, particularly, do you think there's a difference in the way that women mentor men and women? And is it important to have that uh, woman-on-woman on woman mentorship in the arts? Uh, I think it's absolutely important. Women and women, w when we gather, we talk, we nurture, we provide. Men just 
throw you out there for the lions and hope you come back. There are a lot of women coming up through the music industry, you know, from areas of sinking right through to publishing, and I'm more than happy to give you some contacts because they're pretty dynamic. And there are a lot of women that can obviously mentor you and give you that sort of advice, especially on the yeah, road. Yeah, I just, I just was interested mm. in the, the way that women mentor particularly and that they, are, they do seem to me to be a lot more encouraging. And when you're talking about young artists, that's really what I think about when I think about, uh, you know, the seed that needs to grow. It just needs a lot of encouraging. And I find that men in general are more sort of critical and, mm. you know... Women are strategic, they're organised, so and they're mothers. So mentoring is the same as raising a child. Okay, can we go to the second question, please? On number one, yep. Hi there. Um, okay, and so speak directly into the mic, please. Yeah, beautiful. Too tall. Okay. Um, so, sorry, my question does sort of apply to men as well, but I guess we're here to talk about women, so I can we can just focus on them. For it's now. okay, we all know some men. <laughs> but, um, I just have a question. Coming off of the back of the whole Oscars so white controversy, mm. um, I also work in media, not in theatre or tele, but in like I work uh, in television, and there is just such a lack of diversity on Australian television and in Australian theatre as well, to a to a degree, and in Australian, you know, movies and such, um, I find unless it's specifically about people of colour or people of different, you know, cultures, unless it's specifically about their culture, um, I just feel there's no discussion about it. I, and people don't talk about it unless um, it's, um, I don't know, unless it's coming up as a controversy, as an argument. Um, and I just wondered if that was something, you, is, is it an issue within the industry itself or is it just something that's spoken about socially or... No, of course it's an issue within the industry. Because the other thing is that the audience is changing and the audience is more visible. And one of the important things to work out is that um, we know who our audiences are better than we ever have now because of um, the computer program that processes your ticket. It knows who you are, what your gender is, where you live, probably how much you earn. And we know that theatre audience in Australia is a female audience. And we know that if you put a young, like a, a young woman or a recognised female name on a poster um, for one of the big companies in Melbourne, you'll get a higher ticket sale than if you put a man, um, a young man or an older man. And we know that women, as an audience, are looking for female-led protagonism. And we also know that our audience is diversifying, that these groups that have been marginalised from the audience, and specifically I'm talking about Asian Australians who were invisible in our culture, there are deliberate efforts that are being made to reach those people because the future of the art form, the future of the community, the future of theatre as a means of social communication depends on diversity. There is a conversation. Yeah. You need to read more. There's a I'll book out. No, I'm going to put it back to you because I, there is actually a huge I conversation going on. I understand there's a conversation on. online. I'm more mean like behind the scenes. Oh, within I the companies. Absolutely. 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 And there's been a conversation the thing, uh, for over 40 just, years. Can yeah. I just, uh, can I just respond yeah, to that? I, th I think your point is really well made because in actual fact, whilst there is a conversation, the fact is that audiences for theatre, and I'm going to specify theatre because it's quite different, mm -hmm. particularly in the main spaces, are overwhelmingly white and middle-aged. And I find it unnerving when I go to the theatre, and as you can see, I'm a woman of a mature age, and I am the youngest person in the audience. It is a significant issue, I think. Mm. It's also the diversity of the audience. And it's also, I say it, you know, because I work in a university, and it's really clear to me that when I sit on the stage at graduation, which is something I love to do, I can recommend it and watch all those beautiful young people come up and get their degrees in various areas. The arts is still the whitest area. It is indisputable that it is the whitest area. And there are lots of reasons for that. That's to do, you know, like with histories of privilege or not, you know, access to education, a whole lot of other things. But when I watch the kids in engineering graduate, mm. oh my God, yeah. they are from everywhere. Mm. And it is an astonishing thing to see. So I don't think actually that we can settle with the idea that what, we've, what we're doing at the moment, I mean, there are great producers. I mean, I think of Annette Chinois <coughs> and the work that mm. she's doing mm. with William Yang. You know, like, that is amazing. But as with Indigenous curators and producers, they have to carry a massive load and they cannot be solely responsible and for that. And that is still a project-based company, so is, again, one of the ones at risk. Now, I'm sorry, we need to move yeah, on. Of course. Um, yeah. We have one, time for one more question, uh, because I have strict instructions that we must finish on time. So we can get a glass of wine. <laughs> 
Um, this question is um, kind of based on what Van was saying, but it's open to everyone. Um, Van, you mentioned briefly about uh, female narratives in your theatre work, like with the, the strikes and stuff. Um, but it also came to mind me thinking about uh, male playwrights who have written in female spheres of narrative, like uh, Henrik Ibsen, or even playwrights like Tennessee Williams, whose work is concerned like feminine violence and stuff. Um, I don't work in theatre, I've done some stuff in the visual arts, but I thought, what culture do you, as um, people in the theatre industry, think breeds this idea that um, men are both uh, entitled and feel that it is necessary for them to take the place of women and, you know, um, dispel their opinions and their ideas and what is a sphere that is, um, and the lives that are about women. And these are narratives that aren't lived by men, these are only kind of their... Uh, assumptions of how they might play out? Well, I mean, the overwhelming mythos is that men, men are entitled, men are privileged, men get everything, men are experts, men are more knowledgeable. Boys will be boys and we don't care what girls do. Like, that, that men are possessors of knowledge and that men are required to explain the world to us. That men are our lecturers and men are our teachers and men are our tutors and men are our leaders, men are our politicians, men are our representatives, men are our judges, men are our trade union officials, men is, men is the boss, men is, is your father, men is control. And if you write my mother boys. was really important. Depends. I have yeah. to say, my <laughs> mother was really yeah, important. So was mine. And, and this is the thing. If you raise boys with that, with that cultural representation of leadership, that they will believe that they are entitled to it. And one of the reasons why feminists get so much kickback, so much stick, is because we are making it difficult for men to wake, out, wake up in the morning and believe that they are inherently superior to 51% of the population. And for a lot of men, that's really fucking terrifying. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, I just Lee was wanting to get a word in there, and I think we'll just hand over to Lee for one one second. One second. I learned an enormous thing working on one of Van's plays a few years ago. It was a two-hander. It was a love story where the woman was the protagonist, and the male actor had to construct his performance relative to the female agency. And he came to me and said, yeah, but this doesn't make sense. I'm like, you know what? You're just going to have to suck it up because actually it works from her point of view. And I realised I'd never worked as a director on a play where the female storyline sacrificed the men. And it was a, an extraordinary moment for me to realise that our best female actors are the ones that will take very imperfect tellings of female psychology, like the Ibsens, like the Tennessee Williams, mm. hideously imperfect psychologies of women, and make Makes them sense. reasonable. Mm -hmm. Make them make sense to us as women and to the men who live with us. That's what great female acting careers have been built on, a capacity to fill in all those gaps. And on some level, we need our great female actors to be less good at doing that, <laughs> to not paper over the cracks quite so much. I learnt that on Van's play, but it was a, a shock to learn <laughs> that I hadn't learnt that yet. So we're in the middle of the process. Fantastic. Now... <laughs> um, as you'll see, um, this group of fantastic uh, women arts leaders don't agree with each other on everything, <laughs> but they've got a lot to say about a lot of things in terms of the boys' club and indeed women in theatre. Um, I'd just like to thank All the everybody. White club. Yes, and the white club. indeed, yes. indeed. The class club. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, I'd just like to uh, give a little plug to what is Culture Club, an ongoing series at the Opera House. Uh, it's kicking off again as a weekly session from the 15th of March. Pick up this um, leaflet as you head out the door. Um, thank you very much for coming, and thank you to our panellists one last time, and thank you all about women. And thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Fiona.